Well, today I'm joined by Dr. Brett Alderman, and Brett, you are an author and a life coach with a PhD in depth psychology, and we first met a couple of years ago through Critical Therapy Antidote, mm -hmm. and I am really delighted to have the chance to talk with you because I think that there's just in... Uh, you've you sent me a PDF of your book, and I've had a chance to look it over, but I'm not not to dig into it the way I really want to when I get a, a right. physical copy of it. Um, it's fascinating the things that you're drawing together, and mm -hmm. I I'd like to ask you some things about your your new book, but first, would you mind saying a little bit about your own background and your work? Uh, sure. Well, and I'm I'm so glad we're finally doing this because we've talked about talking and um. This is wonderful to finally be here. Uh, so, you know, I was born in Seattle, Washington, uh, went to college at the now infamous Evergreen State College, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And um, there I got sort of a little bit interested and averse to things postmodern. Um, which kind of set sent me down a long rabbit hole of speculation and thought and thinking about certain um, postmodernist tendencies. And eventually that resulted in uh, uh, my doctoral dissertation when I went back to school much many years later at the Pacifica Graduate Institute. And then I sort of I rewrote the doctoral dissertation um, into my first book. And that dissertation was largely around three different figures. One is Michel Foucault, which I'm sure you're familiar with. He's kind of the, the granddaddy of queer theory and a lot of things postmodern. But then I also talked about the American philosopher Richard Rorty, and um, the founder of Deconstruction, who's Jacques Derrida. Um, and so that kind of got me down the, the, the current path that I'm still on um, that's now evolved into a second book where, I, where I'm looking at um, kind of some similar trends. Um, yeah, I don't know if that was a good- <laughs> Yeah, no, that's great. I didn't realize you'd gone to Evergreen. And I also, yeah. I didn't remember that you were from Seattle. So that's really interesting. Um, uh, was what, what, what was your impression of your education that you got at Evergreen? And I'll say before I, before I heard, well, I guess it was before all the stuff happened in, mm -hmm. what was it, 2017, 20. 19 whenever it was that ever I, I should know this I should ask Benjamin this but um whenever that kerfuffle happened that made them hit the national news yeah. um I knew evergreen grads and I thought they were quirky I thought it was it sounded like I you know a really kind of hippie school yeah. a little oh, bit yeah. different and so you you said that you went there and then you took some time off and then you went back to school so it sounds like yeah. this is a little more distant we're talking at least a decade or so back i graduated evergreen in 92 92 okay so a couple of several decades back and now what was your impression of that educational style did you feel like you got a quality education i yeah i do yeah. i i loved evergreen mm -hmm. i mean the evergreen that i know from back then was a place where if you had real intellectual curiosity 
-hmm. And if you, you know, really liked doing good work, you could do it. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel really thankful for the education that I was given there. It also makes the whole, you know, kerfuffle (laughs) to use your word, um, all the more painful because, you know, I, I think once upon a time, it was a, just a, a stellar institution. I mean, mm-hmm. if, mm. if you were the type of person who could really take advantage of it, because, because mm-hmm. you could really, you know, uh, investigate the, the, the different intellectual trends or fields that you wanted to you were pretty much forced to write about them and articulate um your thoughts about you know what you were studying um there it wasn't rote learning it was really mm-hmm. you know it was learning how to think and learning how to how to think both critically and creatively mm-hmm. so it's like supportive yeah. autodidacticism almost with a mentorship quality yeah, I mean, there was that in term. I mean, in terms of like autodidactic, you could do what what was called. Uh, I think it was called an independent contract and in, mm. in independent study, where you could and and I did. I mean, I did mm-hmm. a full semester where I was just uh, studying the work of Milan Kundera, the, mm-hmm. the Czech novelist, and all of his influences. So I got to read Kafka and Cervantes and Herman Brock and. And, you know, all these wonderful writers and then read Kundra and then, um, you know, write about, write about him and, and the other authors that, that he was influenced by. And it was, it was a wonderful experience, but then also you could take more structured formal classes where you were, you know, in a, in, in seminars where you'd have, you know, 20 different people and you'd really hash out ideas Mm -hmm. um, in a way that I think is probably utterly foreign to a lot of people these days because i mean that i mean we're at a point where you can't get 20 people in a room giving their honest take um on on an idea and also taking uh, constructive criticism from others that would be i mean there would be a scandal just waiting to happen there you <laughs> yeah know? so yeah well, that yeah. sounds really, uh, it sounds like a really great way to be able to develop your own intellectual interests and sort of carve out your own path educationally and philosophically while also being supported institutionally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it sounds really wonderful. It was. Is there any reason why you think that that structure was particularly vulnerable to what happened later? Or is it just a, just a, a tragic coincidence um yeah i mean i i do think i do think there i mean there was uh, the students always gave um feedback on their professors and the professors would give feedback on the students there were no grades so you'd get this you know page and a half or two pages sort of a thorough um, description of what you did, what you did well, what you did poorly. And Mm -hmm. I think those were better than grades and really, really Mm -hmm. a great thing. But then you also have the students doing that to the professors, which I think sounds nice, but you know, an 18 or 19 year old, uh, 
criticizing his, you know, 45 year old professor who's got a PhD in decades mm -hmm. of study. Yeah. I think it sets up a power dynamic that probably as time went by became more and more exaggerated to the point where, you know, the students can just cancel and oust two super quality professors like yeah. Brett Weinstein and Heather Hine. So, you know. Yeah, I can see that. It sets up sort of a, a perverted incentive structure. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well, that's really interesting. And <clears throat> so your background, excuse me, sounds like you really dug into a lot of literature. So the history of human thought and this the literary art form and then at some point you wanted to go into the study of psychology yeah so i mean when i was at evergreen because they let you dabble in a lot of different things that's exactly what i did so i you know at evergreen i got to read jung and i got mm -hmm. to read um you know did i read freud i think i read freud back then too and i did a, a full semester looking at anti-psychiatry and radical therapy. So I was looking at oh, interesting. Like Thomas Sage, who was a big critique of the very idea of mental illness. And oh, interesting. R.D. Lang, who was like this really kind of avant-garde um, uh, psychiatrist who wanted to kind of build different types of institutions for mentally ill people and was also sort of questioning, you know, what is this thing called mental illness? Mm -hmm. And well, even Michel Foucault was, was one of the people that I would kind of lump in that category of, you know, the people that I was looking at. Um, so I had, you know, I got a lot of background in psychology and the critique of psychology, which I think is really a good thing um, to have. But then I was also looking at, you know, Eastern European fiction, and I got to do that. And then I was getting little smatterings of, uh, you know, postmodernist philosophy, you know, Heidegger and Foucault and, you know, some of these guys that would later kind of get under my skin and sort of get me really wanting to take them apart and sort of uh, kind of battle with them a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's what you were able to do in your first book, right? I, as yeah, I, I was able yeah. to do it in my first book and then mm -hmm. perhaps even more so in the second book. Yeah. So as you started to, this is really interesting that as you were studying psychology, you were also studying arguments against psychiatry, psychology. And so yeah. how yeah. did that inform your path to studying the, the formal study of psychology in graduate school? Um, and your trajectory in terms of career and, and how you wanted to work in that, within that field? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Um, I think it informed my study because, you know, in the background, I always understood that the, the discipline of psychology can be questioned like any other discipline, um, you know, it's it's not something that you just have to passively ingest, you know, mm. when when you're shown Maslow's hierarchy or, you know, whatever, to take yeah. a hypothetical example, you don't have to just say, oh, OK, that's how it works. Yeah, you can definitely say, well, no. And mm -hmm. like, where does this come from? And mm -hmm. who's this guy Maslow? And, you know, mm -hmm. like 
so it gave me that sort of critical sense, which was great. Um, and, you know, as far as my, my graduate studies in, in psychology, um, you know, I didn't get a, a clinical degree and there were various reasons for that. But part of it was I wasn't so much interested in psychology proper. I was kind of interested and still am in the places in between, mm -hmm. um, you know, like I, I, this is what I love about Jung too, is I mean, Jung is probably more known to people in like comparative religious studies than he is to your average psychology student. That might be an exaggeration, but he was, he was very much um, interdisciplinary. And mm -hmm. so you read Jung, you're, you're learning little bits about Kant, and then you're learning a little bit about, you know, um, Chinese Taoist philosophy. And then, and I love that sort of expansive interdisciplinary vision that he has. And I kind of have that too. And so really when I was getting my, my graduate degrees in psychology, my intention was to teach. I wanted to teach mm -hmm. in some sort of an interdisciplinary um, environment, much like Evergreen. Mm -hmm. And um, that actually never ended up happening, mm -hmm. but that's that was the original impulse. Mm -hmm. So you haven't yet had an opportunity to do that? You know, on my resume, there are a few um, courses in, I was technically an adjunct faculty mm -hmm. who taught a, a few courses, but it was a situation where I was working at a high school and they had some classes that were intended to give college credits to the mm -hmm. high school students. Okay. So I taught those classes in a high school. They got college credits, but I never... It, it was not the experience of teaching at a college. It was nothing like I had hoped of, of doing, but technically, mm -hmm. sure, I've taught mm -hmm. college. Well, and writing books seems like uh, providing an education as well. You're, you're putting your thoughts together in a way that other people can learn from the things that you've learned and, yeah. and then also read your analysis of it and kind of go with you. It's a very deep sort of education in a personal intimate way and also you work as a life coach so i'm interested yeah. in hearing about your practice there and that's like a one-on-one -on -one teacher in a lot of ways so yeah yeah i mean in 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 some ways um so because in part because i wasn't able to use my degree um in the way that i had hoped in in academia mm -hmm. um i you know, I, I opened up a practice as a life coach, mm -hmm. um, which really does allow me to use my background in psychology and in effect do, if not psychotherapy, certainly it's a practice that's psychotherapeutic, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm using a lot of what I learned um, I'm using a lot of the same techniques that I think a, a good therapist would use. Mm -hmm. um, and and so I'm I'm dr definitely drawing from my background in education mm -hmm. um, in the practice. And um, in some ways, I think it it could not have come at a better time because, as you probably know better than, well, you do know better than many, many people. 
there's, I mean, a lot of people are just getting really disillusioned with what's being called therapy. Mm -hmm. They're not feeling like it's particularly therapeutic. They're not feeling, they're feeling like it's been hijacked. Yeah. And so, you know, people see my background and they say, okay, well, this guy can do what I'm really looking for. And we don't have, we, we can call it life coaching, mm -hmm. whatever, um, mm -hmm. as long as it works, as long as it helps me, um, you know, lead a more meaningful life. This is what I care about. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I was, I know I mentioned this to you, but when I, when we first met, it would have been through CTA critical therapy antidote meetings that were, yeah. we were joining around um, sometime in 2020. And I was inspired by what you were doing. And it was, I was already sort of feeling like I, I was just learning to articulate my concerns about what was going on. I knew something was wrong with the way that I was being taught in my school. And I was connecting with other people and learning that there was something going on at a larger level and, and learning that, I guess, developing this concern about the institutional profession of psychotherapy as it stands right now and the and the education of students as well mm -hmm. uh seeing someone who was doing something that was sort of therapy adjacent yeah and, and like you say it is therapeutic what is therapeutic that is very individualized what does that mean to any one particular person yeah. it's not yeah. really something that you can put a license on yeah um but I, it was really inspiring to me to see you doing that well, I'm I'm glad to hear it, and uh, I don't know if it's just my imagination, but I'm seeing also more licensed therapists who are calling themselves life coach. Yeah. Um. So there's there's some overlap and and some merging and some interesting shifts that are happening in that area as people just look for for different ways of. Mm -hmm. uh, feeling better about life, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing that as well. And I think some of it is because people got accustomed to the idea of virtual sessions during mm -hmm. COVID when everybody yeah. was doing so much online work. Yeah. And still a, a lot of therapists want the opportunity to practice with people at a distance, but their licenses don't allow it. And so they yeah. can practice as a coach and they're not limited geographically in the same way. But then there's also people who are are taking aspects of their practice outside of the clinical space and working in ways that they can be a little more creative or a little bit mm -hmm. less limited in terms of the kind of relationships they can form and feeling like the this licensed clinical practice sets limits that they're not comfortable with or or creates barriers that concern them yeah yeah mm -hmm. um one of the barriers and, and some of the limits that uh, that come to my mind is just the very idea of um, diagnosing. Mm -hmm. And I was I actually watched your um, your recent talk with Joshua Slocum, who mm -hmm. you know I'm a big fan of Joshua's. And um, of course, this is a theme that he talks a lot about. Mm -hmm. But I mean, what really strikes me is that. If you focus too much on a diagnosis, um, you kind of lose the story behind it. You know, a diagnosis is a little bit like a, 
almost like a literary genre. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, you can say that the book is a is a crime thriller. That'll mm-hmm. tell you a little bit about it, but it's no substitute for reading the book and knowing the story, which is something kind of what you're doing in therapy and coaching is like really getting at the story and getting at, you know, kind of what's really meaningful mm-hmm. for the person that you're talking to mm-hmm. and having a diagnosis of, you know, bipolar or, you know, OCD is okay. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. that's useful, good, but it's not, it only gets you so far, you know? I love that metaphor. I think that's really brilliant. I, I, I can see how it's, it creates a tendency to overemphasize category or genre, as you say, not only within the therapeutic relationship, but also in the identity of the individual going forward. Yeah. I've been actually kind of keeping that in my, in my pocket. I was wanting to tweak that, that, that genre diagnosis comparison, (laughs) but you're the first, I finally blurted it out somewhere. Well, I love it. (laughs) And I I look forward to the tweet. (laughs) No, it's great. That's a good, it's a good way to look at it. I do think that that's one of my concerns around diagnosis. It's not just the way that the, the bigger picture might get dismissed in therapy, but it's the way that it can be taken in to a person's self yeah. and help to construct something that we are, we're building ourselves around now, right. rather than seeing ourselves as the complex person that we are, despite whatever aspects of that might be categorized in different ways to another or as a part of a larger pattern. Yeah. This kind of gets me back to what we were talking about earlier when I when I said I was I was looking at radical psychiatry mm-hmm. or an, anti anti psychiatry and radical therapy when I was at Evergreen and just mm-hmm. developing a critical view towards the discipline of psychology. I mean that was the type of thing that I that I was beginning to think about. It's like okay, well, what's a diagnosis? And you start to you know think of the history of the DSM and how the diagnoses keep changing, and then mm-hmm. you start to look at like. What's the relationship between the DSM and the pharmaceutical community community, or mm-hmm. I shouldn't call it a community, uh, pharma industry. Industry, yeah. Um, and then you start to think, well, it well, and how much well it I mean, how much is this kind of invented or created illnesses? And how much are these Ill, the the labels just sort of accurately representing things that people just go through. And so we, we need a label to affix them, mm-hmm. fix to them. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, lots, it, it helped me kind of start thinking in terms of, you know, these, these questions that, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's really that tying that into the uh, insurance and pharmaceuticals and the, this, what is the utility of these categories that we call diagnoses? And certainly there's some utility for, for mental health providers. Certainly there is. And, and yet is that water being muddied by other interests? And when I was in graduate school, and I've talked about this before, so I, and I I say that a lot because I, I feel like the same themes keep coming up and I don't want to bore people by hearing aspects of my story over and over again, but I, I'm curious to know how I want to discuss them further. And especially when I have the opportunity to talk with someone like yourself, who has the perspective that you have on this, I'd like to present it to you and see what you think about these things. And um, we had, I, I studied diagnosis and treatment. I, and then I studied um, in a number of other classes where diagnosis would be a part of your case conceptualizations. 
the theme that kept happening was, well, first of all, you'd use another student as your as your subject. You we would take turns being client and and provider in throughout yet yeah, during these these labs or these um uh, what do you want to call them? Hypotheticals. And you'd bring actual problems. So, you know, they'd say, bring something from your real life that you can discuss and actually work through with the student provider, the student therapist. And a theme that kept coming up was if you can't diagnose this person, tell your professor, because we can find you a diagnosis. We will find mm. if you can't identify the diagnosis that you would give a diagnosis is required because when you're in practice, it will be required in order to get reimbursement. Mm. And so bring your difficult to diagnose client to your professor and go over it together. And the professor will find you a diagnosis. And so there's this idea that each of us, as soon as you set foot into the provider's office, if you're seeing a, a, a clinical mental health worker, you have a diagnosable mental disorder. You have something that is diagnosable, every single one of you. And so, so I'd like to get mm. your, your thoughts on that. Well, a really um, strange idea came to me kind of out of left field, but I thought of this idea in, in crit critical race theory. Mm -hmm. where you assume the mm. existence of racism in every interaction right you don't ask is racism happening you assume that it is it's how and then, is it happening and then you find yes yeah and so in this same thing it's like okay there is uh -huh. a diagnosis there yeah. is a, a a malady an illness and i just have to find out where it is and what to call it and call it out um that's interesting yeah, yeah, I can that one see came that. To me out of left field. No, that's really interesting. And you know, another thing that came up, this is kind of so that's on the side of maybe overdiagnosing for the purposes of reimbursement or for the purposes yeah. of having to use some kind of official form in which you see clients. So we see everybody the same way, we always give a diagnosis. Yeah. The, on the other hand, there was an almost a an emphasis on underdiagnosis. We were told over and over these diagnoses stay with people for a long time. So if there's a lighter diagnosis, like maybe instead of uh, this mood disorder, give them an adjustment disorder. Uh huh. So there was a these are going to stay on these people's records. So if at all possible go on the side of the lighter diagnosis. So an awareness that there's this weight that goes with carrying a diagnosis. So I thought this was interesting. There are different reasons. Instead of just, instead of seeking the best way to describe what's happening for this person exactly for itself, we're, yeah. we're acknowledging that there are other motivations at play. And I became really uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you said it well, rather than just being there and trying to see what's what's happening, what's real, mm -hmm. you have to take in all these other considerations that, that you know, and it's interesting. So I mentioned uh, Thomas Sage before, who mm -hmm. was a, kind of a, a libertarian um, critic of the very idea of mental illness. Now, How do you spell his last name? Oh, it's crazy. And I think it's S-Z-A-Z. -Z. That might be wrong. But it's, okay. It's, a, it's Some... a, 
I'll look it up. Yeah. But um, he just rejected the very idea of mental illness. And I, I don't, I don't share his views, but I, I think they're in many ways compelling. He, his take was, look at, if you can't find a biological anomaly, if you can't find that there's something wrong with the physical body, you have no business using the word illness. Mm. And so if, 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 you know, if there's a, uh, there's something amiss in a person's thinking or, or feeling you address it as that, um, mm. you know, and so you, you might counsel them in the way that, you know, a, an, an elder or a, or clergyman or just a counselor would do, but to say that it's illness is just, you know, mistaken. Now I don't, I would not, I don't share that view, but it's, I think it's a good, it's a good one to keep in mind. It's like, why are we calling this illness? Mm -hmm. Like in what way is it an illness? Is that the right way of framing this psychological distress? Mm -hmm. You know, that's really interesting because it puts most, it, it seems like the, that would indicate that most mental or behavioral disorders would be in the realm or would be addressed in the realm of philosophy or education rather than this medical framework, something like that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So So I wanted to also ask you or, or see if you had um, some time to talk about your new book, which has a really intriguing title in eternal youth and the myth of deconstruction. Would you say a little bit more about that title and then about what the book is about absolutely um so i should probably start by trying to define two of the main terms in that title um i'll start with deconstruction um i know a lot of people are have heard that word it's become fairly common to say well you can just deconstruct that take it apart and but originally um, de- uh, deconstruction in the strict sense of the word is a sort of literary philosophical form of analysis that was developed by a guy named Jacques Derrida, who's a French speaking um, philosopher who was really, really influential. I think he's he's he has to be one of the two or three most influential, prominent people who we consider postmodern in their approach he's kind of along there with Michel Foucault in fact um, he was the the student of Foucault and they had some fierce disagreements at times but at any rate um, I I have I'm trying to I want to pull up on my computer a single quote it's only one sentence and it comes from Barbara Johnson who wrote an introduction to Derrida's book dissemination because i think it will give a really good snapshot of both what derrida developed and kind of this more popularized um attitude or ethos of deconstruction that i think is really really prevalent today and um yeah so the 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 quote says deconstruction reads backwards from what seems natural, obvious, self-evident, or universal, 
in order to show that these things have their history, their reasons for being the way they are, their effects on what follows from them, and that the starting point is not a natural given, but a cultural construct, usually blind to itself. Hmm. So it's this sort of approach that says, you know, as soon as you see something, you think it's just, that's just self-evident. It's just the way things are. It's just natural. It's given. It's just, that just, it's and it's universal. Um, it says, well, no, 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 no. That's actually not, that's not the case. It's actually something we created. Hmm. Um, and so they tend to, anyone who's working from a deconstructive viewpoint, whether they know it or not, tends to privilege culture and language over nature and let's say immediate perception. Hmm. That's really um, interesting. And as you were reading that, as you're talking about it, one of the parallels that I saw right away is the idea of introspection that we take ourselves as whole but through looking at why we are the way we are we can find that maybe the roots for the way that we've developed certain patterns are actually in the and so i know this is a, a different thing but it seems like there could be good in deconstruction and then maybe a a bias within it that it, that's yeah. not a it, there's something there you're still doing yeah. something that's sort of a, a, a almost a there's a theory there. It's not yeah. unbiased. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right to point that out. And I, I, I try to frequently come back to that idea that there's, there's something of value here. Mm -hmm. um, even while I'm fiercely taking it apart because I am a pretty fierce critic, but one of the things that I do like to do is, is always find, well, what is the point of value and what is the utility and mm -hmm. tip my hat to that because without it, your, your, your critique is, is incomplete. So mm -hmm. in the case, you know, I mean, I think there is a real value in saying, well, how much am I, how much of what I'm seeing here is the result of just the particular culture that I've been born into the particular language that I speak how much are those things forming my my perception of things? To what degree can I just maybe let go of those? Is that a is that even a possibility? I mean, these are really important questions to be able to ask. But that's different from assuming that the thing is not natural, not mm -hmm. self evident, not given. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing that, something else is going on. Mm -hmm. I would say that to use kind of Jungian language, um, you're, you're archetypally possessed. Mm -hmm. You're already assuming a default position um, and unable to, 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 to assume any other position. Mm -hmm. And that's the danger, right? Um, it's, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're biased by your own theory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. And so you're kind of deconstructing deconstructionism. You're not the first person who said who said that to me. <laughs> I I don't phrase it that way, but fair enough. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'm 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 in some ways I'm using some of its own tools against yeah. itself. Sure.
which seems only right. I mean, yeah. if you ask me, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's very interesting. So the other uh, key word in that title of the book is eternal youth mm -hmm. and eternal youth is, um, or often Jungians will say puer eternus, which is just the Latin for eternal youth um, is um, it's a, a figure that Jungians and archetypal psychologists talk about quite a bit. And um, we tend to talk about it in two different ways. On the one hand, it's a, it's a mythological figure and examples of this might be Icarus who famously mm. flew too close to the sun, his wings melted and he fell down to a tragic death. Um, another um, example from literature would be Peter Pan, um, which I, I like to use that example a lot because it's so well known. And in bo both of those cases, it's a figure who doesn't reach maturity. In the case of Icarus, he, he dies when he's very young. In the case of Peter Pan, it's a boy who just remains nine years old forever because he lives in a place called Neverland. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you, and then the, the other way that we, we tend to think of the eternal youth is we, we think of actual living people who are kind of possessed by a similar pattern. And so this might be the, you know, 50 year old who still hasn't quite found what he wants to do with his life. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. there's a feeling like he's not yet reached maturity, not and also not yet in real life. He's he's all he's got sort of. I'm saying he. It's also it's also she. But um, there's a feeling of arrested development, mm -hmm. like they haven't really been able to fully reach maturity. Um, they're eternally young, mm -hmm. which can have a have kind of a dark side to it mm -hmm. if that means really never manifesting um you know your own uh maturity in in real right. life so to speak yeah like the idea the 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 difference in the sound of young versus immature there you go yeah totally different connotation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah well, and so before I, I, I mentioned that that term puer eternus and that that root word puer, we also get the word prerol or puerile, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of like a derisive. It's kind of a mm -hmm. little bit like mm -hmm. you're being a bit infantile. So it has that connotation of younger than is appropriate or mm -hmm. should mm -hmm. should be. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So, um, you know, in the book, I I basically i read jacques derrida and this basic attitude of deconstruction um as kind of a, a variant of of like a peter pan story because i think there's there's a sense i get in which both derrida and the other philosopher that i really look into which is judith butler mm. um i get the sense that both of them are sort of cases of arrested development in a certain way and a lot of the themes that are really prevalent in their work are also really prevalent in all of the literature about eternal youths and so the book is an attempt to draw the parallels between those two 
seemingly very different disparate things of like Peter Pan and then like postmodernist philosophy. Um, that is, I'm, I'm so fascinated. I have a million questions and I don't even know where to start, but I'd love to hear more about how you have, have drawn that comparison. It's, it's, uh, I'm kind of taking a deep breath because, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, where, to, where to start, where to start. And I tell you, even writing about this is, it's, is challenging in part. I mean, for a few different reasons. One is that Derrida and, and Judith Butler are such incredibly difficult writers, um, just wading through their books and trying to make sense of it all and furthermore articulate that sense in a way that I can later use to compare to these sort of mythological figures it's a challenge even in writing and it's even more of a challenge in trying to say all of that in a in the context of a particular you know conversation and um, on that how do how have uh writers who have been so obscure how their whose writing is so difficult to parse gained so much traction well yeah th that's a great question and it's part of what motivated the book and my answer is that they're telling a story that's appealing, that has a deep mm. psychological appeal. And it's a story that's been around in some form or another for a very long time. So they sort of, in a, they're telling an archetypal tale. Mm. Um, I think the best example of this and the dress, best way of drawing parallels might be to kind of shift a little bit to Butler. And I want to compare Judith Butler who I think a lot of your listeners will be kind of vaguely familiar with. She's the person who talks about, you know, gender as performance, gender performativity. She's the kind of the, one of the leading figures of queer theory. Um, I want to compare her to Peter Pan, I think in a way that might make things clear. So Peter Pan lives in a place called Neverland. And in Neverland, time doesn't pass. And to pretend to be something and to actually be that something, it's it's the same thing. To the pretend and the real are the same thing. This is the basic thesis of not only the the well, the the character of Peter Pan. Like he's the one character in that whole story who can't really differentiate between what's pretend and what's real. There's a scene in Peter Pan that I love in which he is pretending to eat food. So it's imaginary food, but he literally grows fat. Hmm. And so there's that weird sort of confusing conflation of the imaginary and the real, right? Judith Butler's whole theory about gender performativity, if you really kind of tear away all of its academic attire and kind of, I would say, pseudo-intellectual, uh, you know, sophistry, it really amounts to the same thing. I mean, her thesis really is what you perform, i.e. what you pretend, 
is what's real. And the, the act of performing makes it real. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I couldn't see a clearer parallel. Um, and that's, that is the sort of, and it's also the sort of the mentality of childhood, right? When you're young, it's like you live in a life of pretend and you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be pretending. It's a way of uh, practicing entering the real world, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I get the sense that both Butler and in his own way, Derrida kind of live in that realm of pretend mm -hmm. and they kind of don't make the return trip. Mm. Uh, mm in in yeah yeah that well that's really i love that and i i think that's a really great comparison and as you're saying that i'm also wondering what is the proper conceptualization of of these things if if we can even have use a word like proper because that what what is your foundation what's the what's the what's the anchor but so the world is structured based on agreements systems history patterns and if you here this is i'm so inarticulate about this but like for instance yourself you have forged a path for yourself that's different you imagined it different and so it became different for you in a way um you went to a school that offered a lot of creativity you studied this thought and this thought as its opposite and you form a pathway for your life that isn't isn't rigidly bound by the structures around you and yet somehow you are still anchored into the structures and into the systems and the patterns hmm. and so this butlerian or or uh neverland kind of you're in the fantasy realm forever mm -hmm. what's the proper balance of the two uh, between forming your own thoughts and so they making them manifest hmm. and living according to the strict patterns around you am i making any sense at all <laughs> you're making some sense but i'd like to hear even a little bit more okay okay so the if it's youthful uh, and immature to imagine that something can be just because you want it to be use your imagination it's food let's pretend like it's food then there's there's sort of a hollowness to that there's no underpinning what is reality based upon you're yeah. you're creating it out of nothing and eventually that's going to have to fall apart yeah. but there's also something of the spirit of the entrepreneur or the visionary yeah. that that yeah. Em, that embodies that as well that, that has to have some of that imagination and that right. that expansiveness that uh that says wh what's happening right now I see something else and I'm, I, I, I'm going to, because I dream it, it will be. And I think a lot of people who have a lot of openness and, and energy for visionary kind of work embody that in a way that somehow is, yeah. is healthily ensconced in the structures of their time. And I'm, I don't know. I, I just, as you were saying that, I kind of wondered what your thoughts were on that. What, how do you see this as being a, an immature version of this? How is this, this Butlerian and, and Peter Pan, a stunted and wrong version of something that might also have a place and a value? So one of the ways that I address that in the book is, mm -hmm. is through talking about a particular literary motif that I refer to as the magic portal. 
So, I mean, if you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the wardrobe is the magic portal. You come, you go, <clears throat> excuse me, you go from, you know, what is it, 19th century England or London, I think, mm -hmm. um, and you open up this wardrobe and then all of a sudden you're in the land of Aslan, mm -hmm. right? And and the 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 witch and and all of this wonderful fantasy land, which is a land that you know might be in some sense real, but it's not real in the sort of consensus reality sort of real. Mm -hmm. um, and I would I would equate that with kind of like what I'm talking about in terms of Neverland. It's okay. A, it's a land of pretend, it's right? Complete fiction. Complete, right. yeah. Okay. And you can see that motif in a lot of different things. I mean, it's there in, you know, The Wizard of Oz, where, you know, it's it's kind of like the tornado is kind of like the magic portal that, you know, brings okay. her to Oz, where this is completely, again, it's like an imaginary fictional world. Or um, in Harry Potter, it's, you know, a particular place where you get on a train. It's a, I don't know what, I don't remember right now, but it's like the, 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 the seven and a half is like the, yeah. it's like the strange little portal that only certain in an people alley know or something. about, and yeah. that leads you to Hogwarts, you know, yeah. um, you know, in the never ending story, there's another, you know, the, there's, you know, the, the, I don't know if it's a book, but there's, in each of these stories, there's a particular way in which you can uh, um, access like uh, a wonderful world of the imagination. And oftentimes it is a world in which um, you can learn a great deal mm -hmm. and it's it's a very valuable place to um, be able to visit. But in a lot of times in, in the, in children's fiction, there's, there's the question of the return. And there's also mm -hmm. the question of what's real, you know, um, in some stories, the longer you stay, um, like, for example, in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the longer they stay in Narnia, the more they're asking, like, wait a second, what, what's real? Is it Narnia that's real, or is it that London place that I mm -hmm. vaguely remember? Mm -hmm. um, so there's the question of, like, what's real? Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, different stories kind of resolve this in different ways. But generally, there is a return to kind of consensus reality, and then some variation of understanding that other world is being real, but real in a different way, or sometimes it's more like, oh, no, that was just fantasy. But, you know, ideally, there's some sense of I learned something there um, and I was able to bring it back. And so I think that's that. I mean, I don't know if that's a roundabout answer, but it's like, I, I, I think in talking about it in terms of that, that literary genre and that, that, that idea of the magic portal, I, I try to sort of say that it's really important to go there. Mm -hmm. 
it's really important to come back. Mm. Otherwise, you're kind of stuck in Neverland where you think if I just, you know, act like a particular person, I'm magically that person and everybody else has to play along. Mm -hmm. Last thing I want to say, because I just remembered it, that's another really um, fascinating aspect of Peter Pan, is that Peter Pan, the character, when he sees that other people aren't pretending along with him, he gets mad. Mm. Like he gets furious. Mm -hmm. It's like, you must play along with my fantasy or else. And I think we've we're seeing a lot of that these days you know yes absolutely that really rings very true yeah and it's uh you know when you talk about that return it's like a a maturity arc so yeah a, a stage in development yeah so the return represents integration yeah and so you're exactly. talking about a stunted uh a very articulate uh, plea or 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 theory that's coming out of the stage of development that is still in Neverland when we're talking about these theories. So they're they're just they're they're speaking from a place. It's like the student writing the narrative evaluation of the professor. Mm. You know, I'm thinking of this from earlier in our conversation, the 19 year old who is evaluating the 45 year old educated professor. Mm -hmm. And so you're getting a, you're getting a thesis written by someone of a specific developmental period. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's really well said. And um, I think sometimes what makes it hard to see that is that um, they're, they're so um seemingly intellectually advanced i mean that this is one of the things that really tripped me up for so many years is i would read someone like derrida or read someone like foucault later much later read judith butler and they're kind of intimidating you know it's like they're they're they obviously have a, a wealth of knowledge in terms of like what the whole history of philosophy is and uh they use a very sophisticated vocabulary and their and their their syntax and grammar is so complex that you can take that as, oh my God, they're brilliant and so sophisticated. And I just I don't understand them. It must be because they're so intellectually adept. Mm -hmm. But two things. I mean, number one, that doesn't mean mature. Mm -hmm. It means really developed in one particular area. And to be honest, the the more you dig into the text, the more you realize that the those there's a lot of uh, sort of techniques to make their thinking far more complex than what it needs mm -hmm. to be, and that mm -hmm. serves the purpose of avoiding criticism. Um, mm -hmm. If you it's state like something that yeah 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 i mean if i can come up with an argument that just loses you in its prose and it's and mm. it's in it, its sophistry and it's and it's literary puns and it's references and it's you know then then what are you gonna say you know mm -hmm. yeah that's really interesting uh and you know and 
in talking about immaturity and development and and develop uh, statements from a particular developmental stage i i'm reminded of uh, speaking with a young client late adolescence um sometime back this person said something about feeling like uh they get dismissed because they're just going through a stage people will say oh this is just a stage and this feeling of being dismissed is really painful based on the stage and I, as we were talking, you know, I'm thinking about how all of life is just stages. We're just in stages the whole way through. And what's, is there a stage at which we can be said to, to possess the truth for all other stages? And I I think this is really interesting to think about in my own development, in my own life. I feel like the process of getting older there's knowledge acquisition, there's experience acquisition, but a lot of the things that I feel like I've I've gained in terms of wisdom as I've gotten older is just a deepening of understanding of things that I think I already understood before. I can imagine me saying now to 20-year-old me, a bunch of things that I think are important life lessons and 20-year-old me saying, yeah, I totally understand that, but yeah. not understanding it at the level that I understand now. And certainly yeah. probably right now, I'm not understanding things. Should I live another... 20, 40 years, I'll understand those things deeper. It's it's right. not so much that there's there is more, but I think deeper is the bigger message. And it, I, I I wonder about that. Like the stages of understand understanding throughout life. Does one possess truth more than another? Or is it just that it possesses more perspective? I, I mean, I would argue yes to the first one. I think I think there there are greater stages of development in which you know more mm-hmm. however i want to you know tip my hat to what you're saying and i would just say that okay there's a difference between saying it's just a stage and mm-hmm. it's a stage yeah. okay as soon as you say just then it's a little bit reductive and a little bit dismissive right mm-hmm. yes um let's say you know playing with identity thinking about identity that that is very much typical of adolescence that is part of that stage it's not exclusive to it by any means you know um so i mean it's not it's not that the question of identity is just a stage but at the same time it seems to be really really prevalent in that stage and it's something that we might keep on developing but in a deeper more nuanced sense as we grow older Mm-hmm. um yeah so i i feel like i have so many more things i'd love to explore with you thank you so much for for going through this and i'm really looking forward to reading the entire book huh? do you have anywhere that you want to direct people where can they buy the book and where can they find your work well you can buy the book on amazon of course um Eternal Youth and the Myth of Deconstruction. Um, you can also buy it at the uh, Rutledge site. It appears in their series on philosophy and psychoanalysis, and I think you might get it a little bit cheaper there. Um, and as we discussed, we'll put like links in in the below so that people can both look go to my coaching site and to you know links to the book. And yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Brett. It's been a real delight to talk with you. 
it's been fun. Thank you. All right.